Welcome back to another episode of Chats with the Starving Artist. Thank you for those that have been subscribing, those that have been leaving comments and feedback, those that have just written in and letting me know um, what you guys think of everybody that we've kind of talked with so far. Um, definitely have some more exciting people coming up and really excited about who I have today. Really, really dope creative based here in New York City and, and also just travels the globe um, and does some really, really good creative work. So without no further ado, I want to introduce Michael Walrand to the Chats with the Starving Artists. Real quick, if you can tell us who you are, where you're from, and more about your creative discipline or whatever your creative discipline is. Um, well, um, for 13 years, I've been serving as the senior pastor of First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem, born and raised New Yorker. Okay. Uh, this is my 21st year of pastoral work. Um, wow. I pastored for eight years in North Carolina before coming here. So um, I've been at it for a minute. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. What, I guess going into it initially, right, when you think about, a lot of people wouldn't think about somebody in the spiritual space or in a the theology space or even in the church space as a pastor, as a creative. Mm -hmm. But I look at a lot of the work that you've done, and you, you take a very, very unique approach, just me having grown up in church. Mm -hmm. So uh, what inspired you to get into that work, right? Like, this is your, what, 20th year, you said? 21st year. 21st year mm -hmm. of it. So what inspired you to actually take that direction versus going into, you know, another sort of career? Yeah, I mean, I was young when I experienced um, what I perceived to be as a call to the ministry. I was 18 mm. and a uh, freshman in college. And um, after I kind of wrestled through that call and kind of conceded that, you know, my, my vocational uh, call would be the ministry because I went to Morehouse thinking that I would be a lawyer, right? Mm. And um, once I conceded that this was my vocational call, um, there was another layer to that kind of discernment period where I knew I was called to preach because I, and I love preaching and I loved preaching even then. But I did not believe I was called to the pastorate. Um, in, our, in our community, um, unlike other communities, we always interpret a call as a call to preach or a call to pastor, right? right. I remember my first year in uh, divinity school, in grad school, and I had conversations with some of my white colleagues. And I made the assumption, you know, at 22, that when you were in divinity school, you wanted to be in ministry, you wanted to be a pastor. and then. You know, I talked to many of my white colleagues and they were saying things like, you know, while they're in school, this is their period of vocational discernment hmm. to kind of see what is the direction that their call would take them. And that was a language, a phrase I'd never heard before. And so for me, I went through the same period and felt like, you know, well, I felt like my, my, my vocational direction was to the academy. So I wanted to be a professor of religion or theology. Hmm. Ultimately, um, with an eye on administrative work because my end goal, my end dream, so to speak, was to be a college or university president. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, wow. So, I, you know, very quickly, I, I was planning on doing my PhD at Duke and the, the uh, professor who I had built a tremendous relationship with, who I wanted to do my PhD with, my last year in school, man, he died. Oh, wow. And so I really had not built that kind of relationship with anyone else. And so I knew getting into the doctoral program in religion, especially theology, would be difficult because it's based on relationship and professors who you can work with or who want to work with you based on your work or what you would like to do. And so I was faced with a situation where at the time my wife had gotten into a PhD program, she was about to go full time and I had to do something. And so <laughs> I started, I, I got a job at Duke as, um, as a university minister, it was only three-quarter time, though. Mm. But the attraction was that with the three-quarter time, they gave you full benefits. And I had two little kids, yeah. a wife, and, and I had to, you know, and benefits meant something. You know, yeah. you never realize how much benefits mean until you get older in the real world. Yeah. Right? You got to yeah. pay bills and get, deal with hospital visits or doctor visits. And so, and so what they were paying me at the time um, wasn't really enough to raise my family. And so I needed to do something else. And so I thought about possibly getting a part-time job. I thought about um, other things I could do to supplement my income. And it was interesting because there was this church, a small church in Durham, that had been asking me to preach because they didn't have a pastor. Now again, I love preaching. And they asked me about two times if I was interested in pastoring, and I said no. But then one night when I was talking to my wife and telling her that, look, I gotta do something, she said, well, why don't you just go 
to that church. They need a pastor. You like preaching. And my statement to her was, well, you know, you can't go to pastor because you're in financial distress. And she said, <laughs> right. she was like, well, why not? I mean, if that's your gift. So I had decided to go to church. You know, it was a small church, about 20 people, 25 people, man. And they were paying me at the time $14,000. Wow. Right? Here I was in my Morehouse and my Duke degree and had basically two part-time gigs. Um, and, and, but it was $14,000 more than what I had. <laughs> and it wasn't like it was a big congregation, it wasn't 20, 25 people really. And so I figured I could handle it. And I said to myself when my wife was finishing her coursework for a doctorate, I would do this until she finished the coursework and then we would bounce and then I would go do a PhD. And about six months into the work, bro, I realized that, you know, that this was actually my calling. Hmm. And, and part of my reason for not wanting to pass was because I, I didn't think I had enough patience to deal with people on a regular basis. Yeah. And then secondly, um, as a child growing up in church, um, I had been turned off by church. Now, I love God, I love preaching, but I had been turned off by church. I know the same feeling. Yeah, and so I was at a place that, okay, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna pastor, I have to have a freedom to create a certain kind of church. And I told people then the kind of church that would have caught my attention when I was about 14, 15, uh, 14. And because when I got old enough to decide that I wasn't gonna go to church anymore because I was actually living with my grandparents um, and my grandmother really. And I stopped going, I became a 5% of man and all this <laughs> stuff. And, um, and, and, I, and what got me, when I said the kind of church that attracted me, because I was one of those kids who went to church every Sunday. I was a little boy, always in Sunday school. My whole family was involved in the church. And Sunday, you know, we come from that, we came from that strict background. My family is West Indian. It was like Sunday, you did nothing. You didn't watch TV, you didn't go outside. Right. You know? And I remember one time begging my grandmother, can I go outside? And she's like, no, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And, and, and I was like, my friend's outside. And she was like, why don't you invite your friends to church? And so, you know, I, you know, I went and asked my friends, you know, I'm like nine or whatever, you know, y'all want to come to church? And, and all of them said the same thing. Some like 10, 11, 12, we're all on the same block. And they was like, we don't have church clothes. And at the time at nine, I did, I was like, okay, whatever. As I got older and was in this ministry and started pastoring, that story, that moment always stayed in my mind that there were some young people who might have come with me to church, mm -hmm. but they didn't have church clothes. Right. And so, you know, shortly after starting pastoring at this church, about a year or so, maybe a year or two or into it or so, I started doing, you know, come as you are Sundays and the come as you are Sundays turned into really every Sunday. Hmm. Um, and, and I started, it started attracting a different kind of person, people who may have wanted to come, but now they felt they could come how they were. I mean, right. disrespectful, but just come. And so not only was it in terms of just how we came into church, but then I realized a lot of people weren't drawn to the traditional model of church. Yeah. And so at that moment, I tried to, was really tinkering with what are different models, ways that we can do church, be effective, impactful, but most of all, relevant. Yeah. And that has stayed with me from those eight years there to coming here. I mean, we're in New York City, right? This is like the city of the creators. Man. Yeah. This is, this is where it goes down. And if I'm gonna be a pastor, in Harlem, so to speak, right? Yeah. If I'm gonna pass in Harlem, if I, when I got here in 04, I was like, if I'm gonna be impactful, if I'm gonna make, any kind of impact and be relevant, I can't do church as usual. And I started just tinkering with, with stuff the same way I did in North Carolina, always thinking about different ways I could, could shift and move. Um, and, and, and then, you know, one thing led to another, one idea went to another, tried this, tried that, and then we started seeing people coming and joining. And so now I'm one of those people who's always thinking about ways to be relevant, I'm always, you know, people come to me here, the, the staff, if they have a block with regard to some idea they're trying to filter through language or, or phrasing or, or a way to, 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 to uh, label something. I mean, they always ask me, Pastor, what do you think about this? Give me, because I'm, I'm good at kind of synthesizing information and boom, coming up with something um, that I think is creative, that speaks to what we're doing. And so for me, part of my, what pushes me as a pastor 
is that I have to have a commitment to creativity. Mm -hmm. you know, I have to be committed to thinking of ways outside the box, outside the norm, um, that maintain the integrity of the work, but also pushing um, the envelope with an aim to become relevant. Yeah, yeah, I mean, wow, you covered a lot of ground just in that first one. And even, you know, some of the things I wanted to get to, and I'll still get back to it, but I just mm -hmm. want to back up really quick. So you, you got the calling or you felt kind of the pull to do it at 18, mm -hmm. and you were married by 22. Yeah, yeah. Dang. Yeah, well, we... And, and, and had a kid or two. Yeah, we had... No, I had one. At, um, my son was born a week after my final sophomore year in college. Okay. And our junior year in college, man, it was amazing. I mean, at the time, we didn't think it was amazing, but now when you look back on it, you know, our junior year, I was at Morehouse, my wife was at Spelman, our son lived on campus with us between our two dorms. It was yeah. crazy. And um, so when we finished um, college in May, we graduated in May of 93, we got married in August. And, and I started grad school five days after I got married. Wow. Yeah. So you, I remember you, you talk about that story last so you drove to Durham you from, from, Texas. from, okay, from Texas. From Texas, from Houston, we drove to Durham. And uh, we stopped in North Carolina, I mean, in Georgia to get our things out of storage. And then we, we went in and I was right at it. She, everything fell in place. She was able to get a job as a teacher, a special ed teacher. And um, I started schooling, but I was in school full time with two part-time jobs, man. Right, so how challenging was that in undergrad, right? You said you got the calling at 18. So you have these four years, that's essentially 18 is freshman year for most yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. So I assume that was the same mm -hmm. for you. So how challenging was it at the time, right? You have this calling and you grew up in church just as I did. So I understand, right? And I definitely took a break from church when yeah. I got to college. I was like, ah, I'm free, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, didn't have to go all the time. They had chapel on campus. The chapel mm -hmm. wasn't really my sort of steez. And, you know, I just kind of felt free. I wasn't under my parents' wing anymore. So how challenging was it having this calling, right? But, and if you look at it just in, in any respect or faith, you know, there's always the traditions and, you know, are you living the life yeah. of whatever your faith yeah. is? Yeah. So how challenging was it to still be a, a kid in college, right? But then also answer this calling and kind of go down this path following, you know, what you believe your, your, your purpose is here. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, I mean, at, at 18, 19, my view on things were a little bit different, right? Because unlike your experience, you get out of home, you get out of, get out the home, you go to college, and then it's like, man, I'm free. But I had really broke away from church like at 13, 14. Okay. I stopped going. Okay. So this is really a coming back in some ways. Secondly, I, um, when, when I felt called to the ministry, I wasn't even going to church. I wasn't even involved with church. Mm. Um, I was living the life of a freshman right. in Atlanta <laughs> right. in 1989. You know what I mean? And, and was having fun. Right. And this call happened in the midst of me doing what I was doing, being a typical freshman um, at an HBCU, man. I mean, and so in my mind, like, if God called me to this, like knowing who I was, I, I, felt, I felt compelled and this is gonna sound strange, but I felt compelled to kind of change my direction in school. Like, I changed my major, I changed my focus in school, but I still enjoyed school. And okay. I still, so I didn't feel like, I never, there was no point, honestly, in those early days where I felt like I'm called to the ministry, now I have to have this experience or, or put forth this kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, hyper moral, Holier than thou. Holier than thou. Okay. You know, preachy, quoting scripture, you know, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Yeah. That was never me. Yeah. And um, I remember early on when I was reading the scriptures and I was reading the story of the conversion of Paul, how I realized that God, like Paul was zealous to persecute Christians, right? When God, when he experienced his call to ministry, God never took away his zeal. He just changed his focus. Hmm. So for me, I was always a model. My zeal was still there to be who I was. But God was gradually changing my focus. And I was still a kid. Yeah. So I still, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't 18 with the call to ministry and then trying to be 40. Yeah. I was 18 with the call to ministry and trying to be 18, yeah. right? And, and enjoy the experience. So we did all the things. 
And I did everything that people did in Atlanta yeah. time. Yeah. We hung out, we party, you know, freak Nick. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw a documentary about that, the yeah. Atlanta freak Nick. Yeah, yeah, I heard, I, somebody just told me about that. And um, while I still was wrestling through what my call looks like, I knew I was called, but I'm still wrestling through what my call looks like. And, um, and even after we had our son, I still never felt some kind of, oh, I let God down. Or I remember one time I, I spoke to a friend of mine who was much older than I, and, and, I and, and I mentioned that to him. I said, you know, sometimes I feel like I let God down by some of my choices I make, and I was still, like, you know, still in college. And he just said something very simple, very profound, and it seemed corny even to some, but it made all the sense of the world for me. He said, you can't let God down because if you could let God down, it is as if you were holding God up. Hmm. He said, you were never That's holding deep. God up. So how can you let God down? Yeah. So, I mean, that was like, bam, you know, it hit me hard. I was like, okay. So you were like, we out here then. We out here. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and God, we're going to work through this. Right. You know, and what I could not be, though, that I do find in my vocation in ministry is that I could not be pretentious. Right. I could not then all of a sudden put on this air about me since I said I was going to be a, a preacher and and I saw many of my friends doing that. I know many of my colleagues this day, there's like two different people. There's like, you know, pastor so-and-so in the church in the pulpit. And then there's this other person. And then what happens in many of our churches and places around the country, we find out that this other person is completely different than pastor so-and-so. Right. And, uh, and all of a sudden now people have a letdown of faith. I thought he was this. I thought she was that. And I remember when I first came to First Corinthians in 04, I was 33 years old. Yes, I matured, I had two children, I had been married 11 years at that point. Um, but I remember my first Bible study, bro, I, I told the folk, I said, Let's, let me clear the air right now. I said, you know, I am not Jesus, and I am not God, so I don't want to become that for anybody. Right. I said, I, I am a, a human being with a particular assignment, and my assignment is to, to lead this congregation and to honor God in this ministry. I said, but, you know, at the same time, I'm gonna live my life and be true to who I am and be who I am. And I said, so, with that being said, it was so funny. I said, so if someone says to you, I saw your pastor and your first lady at the club dancing, probably true. <laughs> I said, if, they, if somebody says to you, I saw your pastor and your first lady at the restaurant, they had some drinks, I said, true. I said, if somebody said, I was at the cigar bar and saw your pastor smoke a cigar, true. I said, I want to be clear about who I am so that no one falls into any illusions about what they think I am. And for me, that's important because, as you know, I, I try to be as real as I possibly can and be sure. authentic because that's, people are drawn to authenticity, not, not, not pretentiousness. And so, you know, I, I'm not the pastor, you know, who walks around, you know, with the, with the tailor suit on and, the, you know, God bless, I, I'm in jeans and yeah. sneakers when I come to work and I preach in jeans and sneakers at times. Yeah. I just chill because for me, as, as, as you know, is that powerful scripture we heard in revival from the preachers when with God and Samuel, when he goes to anoint David, God said, I do not look like you all look, you all look on the outside. He said, I searched the heart. I've always been moved by the fact that God searches my heart. And no matter what mistakes I make, what things I can do to, or that may fall short of other people's expectations, God knows my heart. And I think God honors, honors my heart more than God honors my appearance. Yeah, would you say taking that approach of transparency is a little uh, attributed to just kind of your upbringing and understanding, like going back to what you were saying with your friends, not having church clothes, right, to, to be able to come to service, mm -hmm. but then also, like, would you attribute it to not only that experience as a kid, but then your understanding and your calling during your time in college? You know, because, yeah. like, when you look at it and you think about it, I grew you know, a lot of a lot of pastors do have that air, or, you know, they, they do live, I hate to say it, like, that double lives, yeah. right, versus just kind of saying, you know, yeah, we were at the club or yeah, we, yeah. we went and had drinks and dinner or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So what, what would you kind of say is the catalyst behind that of you just kind of wanting to take that approach versus being, you know, was it was it because you came up in, in this calling younger than the it most? Could, it could be that, but I know many who came up as young people younger than I and, and did not take that approach. I mean, primarily, you know, man, look, I, I grew up 
in a, an environment that was rough, right? And, you know, and it's the old adage, man, real recognizes real, man. Yeah. And, and I couldn't stand, forget the calling, I couldn't stand fake people. Right. And so I'm not going to say I'm a person who has a problem with pretentious people and then become pretentious, one. Two, I always believe, as I said earlier, that people are more drawn to authenticity than pretentiousness. And three, life is too short to be faking it through, man. Right. And for me, I, I can't, I can't, it's not even about people. I can't deprive myself of my own authenticity, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Um, I got to be true to me. Now, there's a difference between being transparent and then being what a Henry Nowen calls a spiritual exhibitionist, right? Mm. We're just putting all your stuff out there and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. And in many ways, that speaks to an insecurity and a thirst for attention. I'm talking about a transparency that, um, that lets other people know that, that being transparent and, have, and, and in some ways being exposed is okay. Yeah. That's fine, right? Um, that you don't have to hide. You don't have to be ashamed of who you are. You don't have to be ashamed of your struggles. You don't have to be ashamed of what you go through. That you can be true to you. And in many ways, being true to yourself may liberate other people who are shrouded in pretentiousness, yeah. right? So I think it's always been me just wanting to be Mike and, and being clear about that. And who I am now at, you know, on the door of 46 is not who I was at 18. I've grown, I've evolved, and I'm still growing and still evolving. There are things that I don't do now that I might have done three years ago. But it's part of the evolution. It's part of the maturation of you as an individual. And so, you know, that's, that's just how I've always tried to be. And I've tried to not only do it, but I've tried to model it. And I've tried to let others know who are members of the congregation. I said that it's okay to be, to be, um, strong and frail at the same time. It's okay to be called and conflicted at the same time. It's okay to have this tremendous gift and also wrestle with identity at the same time. All that is fine. It is part of our makeup. Yeah, what, I mean, I think it's just so interesting like hearing more just on your story and, and that back context of how you got to where you were, but then I think one of the most interesting parts and just kind of looking at again going back to what we're, we're you know what we talk about here on chats with the starving artists creativity and just the age of the creative platform creativity in itself and you know you talked about how you kind of started come as you are sundays mm -hmm. the congregation in durham and i'm sure that your attendance probably increased as far as like being able to get young parishioners people. not even younger people but parishioners as yeah. members now and, and having people make those sort of commitments and then here as well like at First Corinthian, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a member of, of this congregation and just of this experience. You also take a different and unique sort of approach in, in that as well. Like there's, you know, I felt I came here when I was in college going into my senior year. So it's, it's been, I think, yeah, it's been a minute, probably since 2006, about 10 years. Yeah, wow. And I didn't join until about four years ago. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I was a CV that you, you know, yeah, 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 a visitor. <laughs> and I, so I think that I think that your approach is just different. And the experience uh, and the environment that you create is very, very unique uh, as opposed to what, what a lot of other people or just people are used to yeah. when it comes to tradition just in faith in, in any respect again it doesn't necessarily mean like this is just christianity or this is baptist or this is pentecostal yeah. whatever you know it could be it could be muslim it could be you know whatever the case may be because there's i think in each one of the faiths there's a lot of them are rooted in tradition if you yeah. will so yeah. like i just kind of look at that experience that you create and you, like what made you take that approach like you preach in jeans mm -hmm. and and so, you know sometimes you'll, you'll wear a blazer sometimes you'll just wear a shirt um or sweater you know what I mean? And sneakers. And then you also don't preach from behind a podium. Not a table. Yeah, behind it. And I think that that's a really, in my opinion, is a really, really dope approach just because it's, to me, it's inviting, yeah. right? Versus just kind of, you're not, to, to our point earlier, you're not up there holier than now and, yeah. and, and having this air and, and, you know, there's a, there's a level of humanality and connectivity yeah. Yeah. that I think is able to register with people. So like, what kind of were you always just kind of thinking creatively of like when you got the calling of like how can i you know if your ultimate goal is to bring people to god and mm. have them experience god on on their mm. own terms like 
did you start doing these things and thinking about ways to do it to if the end goal is to bring them to God and have them have a relationship? Was this your kind of thought process behind it? Or like what kind of yeah. did you take this approach? Well, you said something that's very interesting uh, a couple seconds ago. You said, you know, um, helping people to have their own encounter with God, right? I learned that from you, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. But that's important. For, and that's why I, I jumped on it because in traditional church, as was the kind of church I grew up in, um, you were told how to have that encounter. Right. It was told to you what that encounter ought to look like. And not only what the encounter ought to look like, but the, the post-encounter, right? How you ought to behave, how you ought to be. And then pretty soon, you get addicted to these kind of regulations or rituals that you think um, bear witness to the fact that you've had an encounter with God. And pretty soon, you lose yourself in these markers and you never really engage the relationship. So for me, um, this is not a space where I ever say, this is how you live. If you're a Christian, you must do this. If you trust God, you must do this because I believe that all of us are, are spiritual and all of us have the capacity to have that encounter. And guess what? Um, we're all unique and I think God honors our uniqueness, which means that God engages us all differently. Mm. So it is insane for me to say, well, this is where you ought to engage God because this is the way I think you ought to engage God. Well, I just believe that God is big enough and more nuanced enough to be able to have unique relationships with each and every one of us. My role then becomes to get people in a position to have the encounter. Now, what happens after that is between you and God because I have, I'm not in the business of legislating people's behavior or legislating people's morality and saying this is what you ought to do. No. You know, God may tell me, you know, stop smoking. You know, I don't smoke cigarettes, I occasionally cigar, but even say stop smoking, someone tell someone stop smoking cigarettes because that addiction is a barrier between having experiencing the fullness of the God encounter because of that addiction. Whereas someone else, it's not a barrier. So maybe you know, so maybe God reveals to John, you need to stop smoking, and then and then and then Sam over here smokes, but God says, Well, you need to stop drinking, and maybe this person, well, you need to you need to stop being dependent on people so much. I mean, everybody has a different thing that is a barrier. So I just want people to have the encounter now if I if my goal is to have people have the encounter like I always tell people it's like I'm, I'm the matchmaker right I set the environment right I set the ambiance I set the mood for you to be free enough to enter that space and part of that freedom I, I've come to find is how you engage the word how you engage scripture how you engage preaching now, in the traditional space that you grew up, I grew up in, there's a pulpit, there's a preacher, there's a robe, um, and the robe was designed, designed uh, in a way so that the preacher's garments were not a distraction from the word being preached, hmm. right? And so that's the tradition where the robes many, most of the time come from, and also a way of kind of making the preacher distinct from everyone else. But, but my thing is, when I was younger, as a, forget church, just in life, I think we all had problems. I had a problem, you know, I think we all had some problems with authority growing up, but yeah. I had issues of being talked at all the time. Mm. I had a big problem being talked at. the same at. issue. Yeah, right? <laughs> and being talked to. And the, way, and the way church is always set up with the pulpit being elevated, it was like you were being talked down to. Yeah. And so most churches are gonna have that elevation for many practical reasons, but, but for me, I realize people, most people don't like being talked at right. or talked down to, they like conversation. Right. And so how can I create, I know preaching moment is not a conversation. It is, a, it is actually a conversation, the way I view it, between the preacher, the spirit, the preacher, and the people, and that energy that's being created between those three entities. I do five of, that's why you know, I don't, I don't preach with notes, and I don't preach with sermons memorized or written down beforehand. For me, that's a, that's a moment of energy, and so I just come and I vibe off of what I feel. I feel what the people are giving me, what the Spirit is going on, and that way I'm straight, you know, I follow the leader, the great jazz improvisationalist, man. You so you're, yeah, so your approach is more improvisation. Yeah, it is always, absolutely, for the last um, 15 years of preaching, it's been improvisational, and so in that moment, I had to create a space that helped the improvisation, but also created conversation. For me, I vibe the best. I feel the energy. I receive what I'm hearing when I'm moving. So for me to stand behind a pulpit 
was restricting to me. Hmm. I couldn't feel the congregation. I couldn't feel people. I couldn't feel the energy. I couldn't feel and hear what I needed to hear. So I had to be able to move around freely. And the pulpit then became a barrier for me, the traditional pulpit desk. The other thing is that when you looked around talk shows and things like that, you saw what the great talk show hosts, whether it be Oprah or whoever, were always conversational. Yeah. And people were drawn into that conversation, even though there was not a dialogue going on between the audience and the person, creating an environment that was conversational and inclusive and inclusive. People felt they were part of it. Well, same thing here. So now you have a sanctuary, you know, 1900 people. How do you make 1900 people feel like you're having a one on one conversation? You right. change the visuals, right. you change the environment, you get up, you move, you take away all the things that are shrouded in elitism, so to speak, with regard yeah. to church. And you get people in a place of comfort. Mine has to do with creating that comfort. You, you, what is more engaging and conversational than when you walk into somebody's home, they answer the door, they got a cup of coffee, y'all sit down and start rapping. Same thing I do here. I walk out, I got a cup of tea, I'm sitting down, I'm talking. And then it's like, oh yeah, okay. And then I'm also injecting, intentionally injecting humor that also kind of diffuses people. Yeah, and brings down the walls. And brings down the walls, right? And so now we can hear in ways and be open to the encounter and be open to receive. And then lastly, there's a practical reason to the table and chairs. Well, um, I was on steroids for six years because of a condition, mm -hmm. a medical condition. And it, it damaged my bones hmm. and it caused um, degenerating bone, degenerating um, bone in my knee and it caused bulging discs in my neck, in my mm. back. It caused arthritis in both my hips. So, Damn. yeah, so, so, and that pain could hit all at the same time. So it, it was a matter of now, you know, managing pain to sit down versus standing up a whole time. Yeah. So you always, people around who know me, they always can tell when I'm in pain because I sit long in the sermon. Mm. Then I do stand. <laughs> I'm gonna pay attention to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because <laughs> you'll see, I, there's sermons I've preached completely sitting down, and there's some I've, I'm sitting down, but if, if I'm feeling it, so I gotta stop moving, and I'm being led to move to receive more. And sometimes I started standing up. But I have that freedom and flexibility. The table is really there, honestly, as a kind of prop to create the conversation. Um, like we now sitting at this table, right? So in many ways, my sitting at the table, everyone in the sanctuary may feel like they're on the other side of that table in the conversation. Right. Right? And then you'll see the book is on the table, um, announcements on the table, and my, co my, my cup of tea or water is on the table. And all of a sudden now, it's a whole different vibe, you know? And honestly, it, to a lot of traditionalists, they don't like it. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of preachers don't understand it. But at the end of the day, what's important, the preaching or the props? Right. And so for me, it's the preaching. So whether I was sitting down on the steps, whether I was chatting, the preaching, it happens anywhere. If I'm walking on the street and I'm talking and if I'm in the store and I'm talking and I don't have to carry a, a portable pulpit to be able to communicate the message. So why I got to do it here? So. Yeah, facts, facts. I, I think, I mean, you, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, why I've gone here so long. Uh, not j all of that, right? But looking at and now having a deeper understanding, you know, there's a level of respect that I have for, for the church and just the environment that's created and you know resonated with me which is why I kept coming back and I remember you know by that 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 summer I was interning in the city going into my senior year I was staying downtown and I think the end of it I, I stayed with my cousin she was living on 118th and she was going here she was actually working at Abyssinian and I think an actual member there but just started coming here mm -hmm. so when I was you know she oh you're gonna go to church because my dad was a pastor and I was like, all right, cool. And I felt like if I didn't go, she might have told or whatever. <laughs> so I came and uh, one thing that pulled me, the first thing that pulled me was kind of like the, the music experience. Yeah. The, the praise and worship was amazing. But then, you know, at the same time, then, you know, have you come up, the music was great, and then have you come up relatively young, and not relatively, but young, younger, younger approach, younger dude, wearing jeans <laughs> and, 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 and a button up and, you know what I mean, and kind of just chilling. And then 
you know, I kind of saw that authenticity. Um, but then to your, your, your point, right, like you were able to and you have been able to and you still do. And I think you kind of work on elevating that creatively and creating an experience that is engaging. When I do a lot of the programming that I do with Age of the Creative, right, um, and I have some, some work I'm doing in the conference and festival space, you said something earlier that I really, really connect with. And, and you know, I just believe that that just kind of needs to be struck down in, in a lot of different facets, not just in faith, but creating an environment that is inclusive and inviting. Yeah. You know, when I, when I go to conferences and when I'm sure you've been to different conferences and festivals and stuff like that, a lot of the times, you know, you have these people at, up on the stage talking at and to you versus speaking with you. So when I program, when I do different things for some of my clients that I work with, or even if I just want to activate something on my own, a lot of the times what I do is I make sure that the environment is as such where everybody's included, yeah. whether it's, you know, I, I put it together in a circle. However, you know, I'm able to kind of set up the room and whether if, and if it's a raw space, being able to just kind of create that from scratch. And I just look at even, you know, you giving that context, I look at the transformation of the sanctuary from when I first started coming mm -hmm. here, right? And then to what it is now. And it, you know, now it's almost kind of like a raw space. Yeah. You know, uh, you do have, right, you do have a stage and that serves as a, a pulpit of sorts. Mm -hmm. But it, there's no other than, you know, the instruments and those things move around at times. Yeah. You everything know what I mean? Changes. So that everything changes. And so I believe that there's just kind of, you know, I, I think the, the, the good thing about this is like there's the consistency is change. And yeah. there's, you know, and, and so change is always good because there's an opportunity to grow. And so I just kind of look at it again, just same sort of thing of like, how can you get people to connect and within connecting to them and creating that sort of space also serve as a, a source of inspiration. Right? Yeah, and yeah. I look at even right like TNT Bible study. Yeah. You don't even I mean, it is Bible study. Right. If we look at the formalities of it, it's more it's more like think about it. Like you said, but you're right. I intentionally never called it Bible study. Right. Because. There are Tuesdays when it may not be about scripture. Right. It may be about a topic. Right. And, and you talk about current events and current events. Kind of, yeah. Because I think this is the space, man. If we can't have multiple conversations on multiple levels in church, where else are we going to have them? Where else are you going to capture on a Tuesday night 200 people talking about current events? Right. Where else are you going to have that? And where else on the middle of the week you're going to have 200 plus people streaming? And you're going to go from talking politics to social justice to movies to scripture to books. I mean, all in one moment. So that's part of the creativity. I think when you talk about change, well, it's being true to our statement. The first line of our purpose statement is that we are an ever-evolving community. Yeah. So you can't put out that you're ever-evolving and then limit it to what that looks like or be afraid of change or, or, or limit what that evolution can look like. You know, today... We look one way. Today, the stage looks one way. It'll change. I tell my staff here, we go through kind of a reimagining of who we are every three years so that we stay current and fresh. And, and, and it, has, I mean, it has implications in everything. Even when we, for example, started the journey, it was trying to say, and it was last year when our theme was, you know, I am a doer. Yeah. Well, let's talk to some doers and hear their journey of how they got there. Let's talk, let's, and let's do it in the middle of service. Let's not do a special night of empowerment and we bring people in. Because it's tough to get people tough outside to get people on Sunday. And it is, because why? If we were down south, it might not be as tough. If we were in the Midwest, it might not be as tough. But we are in New York City, in Harlem, in Manhattan in particular. This is the, this is the bow of distractions, bro. So yeah. I, I'm competing with 100 things every day. Yeah. And, so, and so Sunday has to be the moment. And then on top of that, it's not a traditional church in the terms of its makeup, its build, its design. It's a theater, which means then the things I could have done in down south because I had land, because I had classrooms. I can't do here. It is a theater. The design of the theater is to get people in, to enjoy, to focus on the stage, and then get out. So that means then I have to approach what we do from a theatrical point of view, mm. right? So that means that's why you see things on the way in on the wall just like in a theater you get messaging all the way in you get messaging all the way out and that's where the communication takes place even the announcements can't be traditional like in church you know somebody gets up read announcements and you know and 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 or or 
really even say anything. You just get the program and they depend on you to watch, read announcements. Well, then everything becomes now a creative moment. Well, here is your live in five. And then boom, we go through it. You right, know, right. videos, imaging, you know, directing people, giving. There's six ways to give versus in church you grew up. You got your tithing number. You got your envelope. You gave it. Well, here you can text. Here you can go to the kiosk. You can give traditionally. You can go online and give. I mean, all of that stuff is designed to maintain relevancy. Um, and I'll give you a great example of what happens in many churches and in many spaces, as you said, not just faith. When I came here in 04, I was trying to get an idea of the streams of revenue. Now, the church didn't have a lot of money, they didn't have a lot of people. When I came in 04, Sunday morning, it was about 100 people, hmm. right? And in this space? In this big space. Wow. So imagine what that looked like with 100 people in here. That's less than TNT wow. on a Sunday morning. Yeah, do so. So, so I'm sitting here, and I remember as I'm going through all the areas, I went to one of the main ways of revenue in most traditional churches, which is the selling of sermons, right? So they used to have a sound booth back here. We knocked it out when we did the renovation. It was a yeah. sound booth. Yeah, I remember. And and I remember one Sunday, maybe it was my second, third, no, my third Sunday. And I'm sorry, no, it was after my first month. So I went to the financial clerk at the time. And I was looking at the uh, sermons, what was coming in from sermons. Now, you know, I knew that that first month, bro, I was preaching hard. Yeah, <laughs> I was, it was one sermon. I mean, the blessing is those days I had one time to preach every Sunday. And now it's three, which is amazing. But one sermon. So I'm giving it full blast every yeah. Sunday, right? I mean, full blast. And I was like, we weren't selling no sermons. <laughs> I was saying, come on, I know I'm going hard, right? Yeah. So I decide on that first Sunday of my second month, I go after service, I go into the booth. When I walked in the booth, I knew why we weren't selling, why we weren't selling sermons. I walked in, 2004, and they had tape duplicating machines. <laughs> they had cassette tapes. Right. They were selling. Nobody used cassettes. So, so instead of just saying, this is ridiculous, this don't make no sense, everybody who was part of that ministry, I asked them around the room, who in here has a tape machine? Not one person in the room had a tape machine. So I said, so let me understand it. You're selling products that you wouldn't even purchase. Well, that's why it ain't happening. So what did I do? I knew we didn't have all the money. I took my own money. I went and bought a, the CD duplicating machine. Yeah. Came back. We, I trained the, uh, the members of the team on it. And that following week, we started doing, we had one duplicating towel which pumped out like eight at a time. You know. And what we did is I said from the minute, from the minute I end the sermon, start duplicating. Mm. And the next week, with, and I had them do a sign, CDs for sale. I announced it. From that next week, sales went up. In a week difference, in, the, in, in, in one month of the CDs, we brought in more money than, than nine months of selling tapes. Mm. That's what happens in church. You end up living in a, operating in a world that you don't live in. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's like when someone came to here, I heard someone one time felt some kind of way about the kiosk machines, right? It's easy. Why? I, yeah, but see, it's people's notion of what's traditional in church. Oh, I don't, I don't like that. And I remember the, the person who said it to me said, you know, I just feel funny about that. I said, okay. I said, when you go to the supermarket, how do you pay? She said, my debit card. I said, when you, <laughs> when you go shopping, how do you pay? My debit card. I said, when you get gas, how do you pay my debit card? I said, so you just gave me three areas in your life where you use a debit card, but now you feel offended in church that I'm asking you to use your, your debit, debit card. card. Right. I, so, so when is your church life going to catch up with your real life? Right. And that's what happens. We don't think like that. We don't even think about that. And so for me, it was just being intentional that when people enter this space, there is a sense of familiarity to their everyday life. And so the way you engage, the way you are. So I, so I do things that many traditional church people don't like, which is like social media moments. Yeah. Pause, take a selfie, hashtag FCBC Live, whatever. And then, and then somebody's like, well, oh, that's crazy. Well, most people do that in their life. Right, right. People Snapchat and Snapchat. And <laughs> they, you know, I, I had to help people here and learn who were like ushers. There was a time we used to tell people we don't want no phones when I first came into sanctuary. And it had to be very intentional. Well, uh, people's Bible app is on the phone. They take 
notes on the phone. So you can't say no phone. Right. And and if if they happen to take pictures or if they happen to be recorded, we can't stop it. Yeah. Right. So let's just roll with it, man. And then now you incorporate it into the experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it is just again, if I'm going to live a certain way in my life, I have to. I, I should be able to live that same way um, or ex have those same kind of experiences in church. That's from music, that's to how we give, that's to how we work. You know, I'll give you another example. Most of us who grew up in church, we know about ministries. Mm -hmm. You know, you grew up, I, remember, I was part of youth ministry, YPD, or you part of, <laughs> my grandmother part of missionaries, you know what I'm saying, all that kind of stuff. Well, when 55, no, I'm sorry, when 60% of the people who join your church are unchurched, they know nothing about that. Yeah. 60% of people who joined FCBC, and numbers may have gone down now, but it was a period between 2009 and like 2012 where 60% of people who joined were unchurched, which means that they don't even understand the language. So a few years ago, we started developing two tracks. Well, yeah, we got ministries that people can be a part of. We also got volunteer opportunities. Yeah. With people who may not feel like I'm not going to join a ministry, come to a ministry, but you know what? Because it sounds like a commitment. It sounds like a commitment, and people don't want commitment. It's not that kind of commitment, again, when you're in the city of distractions, right? And so now, we're going to be feeding the homeless on this day. Hey, I can do that that day. We're going to be going to the senior citizen complex and clean up. Hey, I can do that one day commitment, two, three hours. And so you create different tracks. Um, pretty soon, that is going to be the model. And that's why this year, we've paused a ministry, right? So that when we come back, may not be ministry the way we think. It may not even be ministry per se, but a, a year-round community engagement, volunteer engagement, outreach engagement, period, and not the ministry model anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm, a couple more questions, because mm -hmm. I know I, I gotta go and I gotta get yeah, you out of here as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, I talk about a lot of the work I do on the brand side and just in my, my agency and marketing experience, you know, I recognize and why I kind of started the work that I do with the creative community is to foster the building of it, right? And so within the, the age of the creative, within the podcast, within the programming, within the monthly playlist of emerging musicians to look out for, within just any sort of way in the content that I'm working on, it's always figuring out a way to just help the creative community, but then also like take a risk in just ways that people encounter um, and engage with with the creative community and creating unique experiences and one of the things I realized Going back to like the marketing and advertising industry is that a lot of the times and that's why I started just my consultancy is is Brands and agencies and people want to work with artists and creators. Well, a lot of times they don't know how to do it yeah. so I understand being a creative I understand how they think and having managed these people and work with them and then also sitting on this side I understand how the marketing people think and and the nomenclature and the jargon and how they talk so I'm able to sit in the middle and facilitate those things and what I realize is in them wanting to work with them but not knowing how to do it and this applies to other facets of life as well people are afraid to take risks yeah. And so for, for a little bit, I've been saying like risk versus reward is the new ROI. Yeah. And that meaning when you look at when you talk to marketing people, a lot of times they're looking at, OK, how is this going to affect the bottom line? How is this going to move mm -hmm. our units? How is this going to sell and do whatever the case may be within the things that you've done? Right. And everything that you just kind of talked about and the approach that you take to creating a unique experience, you're reimagining and rethinking of just ministries and, and ways to get people involved just a lot of the the sort of new things and new ways you've created encounters um that tie into like some of the church themes what's been the biggest like it, it's all risks because it could fail so what's been you know what's the biggest reward for you and what do you think your kind of risk versus reward is or what do you think your, your return has been just of taking these risks yeah well I, for me what lets me know that the the risk that I've taken to do um, that it is fulfilling it is reward is because of what you see in the church, the engagement from the community, the amount of people who've joined. I mean, you're talking about in, in you know 13 years that we'll celebrate in July, a church that went from 100 people on Sunday in one service to now um, about. On a given Sunday, about 3,500 people um, in three services, right? So I've seen what has happened. People have come. People have joined. People have engaged it. I've, 
I, I've seen the different levels of engagement of this congregation in the community and in this city um, that, that has yielded some unbelievable fruit, right? And I always say this, that if you can't do great things for God, if you're not willing to take big, great risks for God. Hmm. And my risk taking is not to, 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 to be standout or to, 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 to bring attention my way. My risk taking that I do in this place is to increase people's awareness with God and to build what I believe is the beloved community and also the kingdom of God, which the kingdom of God and the beloved community go hand in hand to me. Hmm. I take a risk with the hope of wanting to bring people to a deeper awareness of who they are in there and in relationship to God. I cannot begin to tell you how many people I hear come to me with the same kind of line. You know, I've never been in the church. I've never really gone to church. Or I was an atheist. Or, but, but something here triggered me. I mean, there's a woman here who's a Yoruba priestess hmm. who comes every week. Hmm. And a friend of hers, um, who I know we have mutual friends, I didn't know if she was a Yoruba priestess. And he saw her one Sunday in line waiting to come in for service. And he saw her, and then, you know, he didn't say anything because he was cross street. And then when he saw her later on that week, he was like, you know, I saw you in line at First Corinthians going to church. I didn't even know you go to church. And her word to him, what she said to him was, she said, I go where the light is. Hmm. <laughs> right? Hmm. So in that moment, it wasn't about, well, is this a Baptist church for her? Or is this a Protestant or Christian? It was the light. And so I think in that manner, with all the risk taking that we may do, it is also not only with the hope of being impactful, but as you said earlier, being inclusive. So in this space, you see what? Tons of creatives, right? Who are in it? I mean, literally. I mean, literally tons in all fields. You see, uh, multicultural engagement. It's not just an African-American congregation. There are, there are whites and there are Latinos, and you call it. It is not just a heterosexual congregation. Yeah. It has a large uh, a, a number of people who are part of the LGBTQ community. I mean, you call the role, everyone's here. Why? Because that's what the beloved community ought to look like. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Yeah. And, and all people of different backgrounds who come together with a desire to honor God and honor the humanity of the other. Well, when you create that environment and are intentional about creating that environment, you ought not be surprised by the different kinds of people who enter the doors to have this experience. And, and we can, like you said, when you think of programming, a festival, things you do, you think you're thinking with inclusion in mind. Whereas in most churches, they think about, they 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 think of, they preach to the choir. Yeah. Or they think about the choir, not the person they're trying to attract. They think about who's already in the building. If you're only creating work and ministry and environment for who's in the building, pretty soon those numbers will decrease because people start to fade away and die. But when you think about who you ought to attract, who your target is. Right? Everybody has a target. In business, you got a target. Yeah. And, and most churches don't have a target in mind. They're like, whosoever will, let them come. Now, I, <laughs> now, now, I'm not saying that's not the approach, but you got to have a target in mind. For me, and I'll say this, my target, here are my targets. One, the unchurched. Primarily, Jesus' last mandate to the disciples are go make disciples. Go into the world and make disciples. It makes the assumption from Jesus' perspective that everyone ain't disciples. Mm. So go make them. Go find them. So that means then he says go. So most churches are built on the word stay, not go. Go. That means the unchurched. Two, then people like myself, yourself, is another target. Because there's three. People who grew up in church, when they got old enough, things <laughs> like <out>. bump church <laughs> and ain't been back since. Right. And so that's the other target. So then I gotta, I gotta, cause because those people like you and me, there's that spirituality in there, but they didn't like the packaging. Mm, right. All right. And then third is why the love language, and, and I'll give you an example, why from the day I got here to this day, it becomes funny now, right? Where I say, what? As we pray or have some moment in church, give somebody a hug, tell them you love them. Right. From day one, I was doing that. From day one, people was like, uh, yeah, but yeah, now, it's kind of weird, but it's it's you know that's what that's what life is about. That's what life is about, right? So pretty soon, why is that important? Well, this is a brutal city. It can be harsh. 
and be cold and callous. Yeah. But this has to be, there has to be some space where you feel a sense of love and warmth and beauty and shared community. And so do that. Second, another reason I do that is to hit the third target. What was the third target? People who've been wounded by church. Mm. People who've been damaged by church. Where church wasn't a very loving space. Where church wasn't a very affirming space. Where church wasn't a very validating space. And so for them, that moment means something. To be in a place that becomes synonymous with pain now becomes synonymous with love yeah. and engagement. Yeah. So three targets I'm intentional about trying to reach. And not saying, hey y'all, because I never made that. Hey, if you've been hurt, join. Hey, <laughs> if you grew up in church, you sat second church, join. Hey, if you don't, no. It is create the environment that those three target, those three individuals could come into and be like, you know what? I could come back. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I want to do. Awesome, awesome. Last question. Mm -hmm. you, I know you have, you, we didn't talk about it today. I'm definitely going to have to get you back at some okay. point. Uh, I know you have a, a little bit of a background or a lot of bit of a background in, in just kind of community organizing. You talk about that at mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. So within that, right, you look at just kind of a lot of the things that you've initiated here at the church but uh, that bleeds over into the community, mm -hmm. right? So you have the Hope Center, which is the, the, the latest spin-off endeavor of, of FCBC, yeah. and then you have the Dream Center, and I'm sure that there's more things coming, yeah. whether or not that's another location or just kind of other things that are just mm -hmm. gonna kind of pop off. And then also you kind of look at, I look at just kind of how you're able to embed things like the journey, um, and that's even you know a, a property within FCBC, but then creatively looking at how you it's, I think it's interesting how you put together themes for the year for mm -hmm. three years put together the mission the purpose statement how are you with that background does that help you integrate these these sort of off spin-offs seamlessly or you know, how do you how does that kind of work together because I, I, again it's a very very different approach yeah. a lot of you know churches have things like the Hope Center but that it's, it's in the church or things like the Dream Center or spaces that you can, you know, a rec room or multi-purpose room. So how are you able to seamlessly integrate that yeah. within, you know, the act, your, your ministry and the actual ministry of yeah. this, this body? Well, one, for me, ministry and the creative of ministry opportunities is not based on ideas, it's based on necessity, right? Mm. Whereas in church, you go to every church, you see what? Men's ministry, women's ministry, couples ministry, single ministry, it's ideas. But this is, has to be based on necessity, because if it's not based on necessity, it will not get valued or used, right? Mm. So you, you generate your, 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 like if you create a business plan for a business in the community, the hope is that you're not bringing a business to the community that's a good idea, it's based on you seeing the necessity, mm. right? And, and, so and you create these things out of the necessity? Out of the necessity of the community's needs. Not because I got a great, I got tons of great ideas. But some of the ideas I have won't really take off because it's not, it hasn't, it hasn't manifested itself as a need of the community. Right. Right? And so the things we do, for example, breakfast before books. Yeah. Everything we do like that is out of a need. What's the need? Well, you could say, well, kids got to eat. No, it wasn't just kids got to eat. It was two things. Um, well, let me back up because it started as a summer feeding program. Yeah. The summer feeding program I started because... Um, I've, I read an article one day that said many children in underserved communities who are impacted by poverty, um, when the summer comes, they struggle with food. Because mm. whereas in school they could get food, now yeah. they're out of school, the families are struggling. So that's we started that. The Breakfast for Books um, program, and we stopped that because we just didn't have the personnel to maintain it. I plan on bringing it back in terms of that summer feeding. But the Breakfast for Books thing was important. Why? Well, somebody said to me, a pastor. Um, schools do breakfast already, so why would you do breakfast before books? Well, there's a high number of children and families who live in shelters in this community. Yeah. Who sometimes struggle with getting, because of the nature of the shelters, getting the kids together, getting them out on time. It's a struggle. And many of those kids end up missing breakfast. Mm. Right? So it's very, it's a very targeted group of people. Um, you know, you have a, a mother who's a single mother and she's working jobs and gets in late at night and she has a hard time getting the kids together in the morning and she may be 20 minutes late and because of that the kids miss breakfast. Well, these are, that was for these, that's what Breakfast for Books was for, for those families, those parents, 
those children. And what you find is, what I thought would happen is that it started becoming not just the kids would come get something to eat, the parents mm. would get something to eat as well. That's what Best Four Books, the Hope Center came because I realized that my training is limited. That I was seeing people in counseling that had needs that were greater than my ability. Yeah. And so it was one thing for me to say, hey, I think you need to see a therapist. You need to go see professional help. And I may even refer and say, go to this agency, call this. But I felt, I, I felt in some ways like I was, I was, dis, I was not, yeah, I, I, that phrase again, I felt like I was letting people down, although mm -hmm. I wasn't. But it's, it would have been easy for me to say, you know what, you got somebody here, talk to so-and-so. So then, five years ago, we brought in uh, a sister who came on a part-time basis doing counseling and therapy. And then when I saw that her caseload was increasing, we then got interns. And then it was another issue that rose. The issue was there's already a stigma in the African-American community about mental health issues, right? And so um, this particular person, her name was Joyce Johnson, who was running this. And then people who feel stigmatized around mental health anyway, something else was happening. When you came to the front and you sign in your name and they say, who you coming to see? Joyce automatically it's like sometimes you think oh they know something's wrong with me yeah right so then it's versus like, just getting that support yeah in general yeah so even if there wasn't the case there was some people who felt some level of shame maybe or the stigma behind it so then I said we need to find a space that so that people don't feel that same that they can come to church without feeling a stigma coming to the church that they're part of and so I want I saw her work though I want to get somebody full-time and I want to get another space off-site right and that's how that merged. I, about a year and a half ago, I spoke with Kendra, uh, the sister who runs Hope Center, who used to be a member here. When she was finishing her work at Columbia School of Social Work, she left here to get a job as a social worker, a counselor in Atlanta. I said, and she also had a degree in ministry. She was ordained as well. Mm. I said, I want to bring you back. A year and a half ago, I went to Atlanta and talked to her, man. Mm. And, and we, I would go down there periodically and have these conversations. And then we got to a position where we connected with a developer, the, the two principals of the development co company, um, one is a trustee and one is a member. Mm. And we, that's how we got the Dream Center. They developed that building. Mm. And then they were developing this space around the corner. And I said, listen, let's do the same kind of thing. The same way we got that space for the Dream Center on the first floor, create a space, let's get a space on the first floor for, this, for what could be our mental health spot. That's how it started. That's so, awesome. So when they finished the building, um, we went into an agreement, but I had to be patient to when Kendra, the person who I wanted, could be free. And so she, we got into the building that last, beginning of last summer. So until we got it to where it was, we would use it for alternative meeting space. And then we hired her, brought her in um, in November. And then we did ribbon cutting for the Hope Center in December. And since that, I mean, the traction has been bananas. Partnerships now we have with Columbia School of Psychiatry. That's awesome. When you begin to do these things, people are drawn to it. So now, in addition to our staff with Joyce and Kendra, we have interns from Columbia School of Psychiatry, and we have two women who are um, psychiatrists by trade, right? They're psychiatrists with medical school who have th um, who are therapists and have practices, thriving practices. I named people who they are and. I mean, they have thriving presence in the city. They, one of them, a white woman, comes here to church sometimes, about two times a month. Mm -hmm. And so when she saw the Hope Center, she said, hey, I want to help. So what is she? And then she got a friend. Both have these cushy, in their words, cushy practices, right? And they said, we want to give our time. So now, when our staff feels they have a case that's a little bit more than them, they refer them to these women. They come in once a week to see those persons and what they have the ability to do. Not that we push people this way, but these two, because they're psychiatrists, also have the ability to um, write prescriptions if they saw that need. Mm. So now you've got Columbia School of Psychiatry, you got our team, and you got these two psychiatrists who are all working in the Hope Center. Now. Yeah. And, and we change the language. They're not patients, they're not clients. We call them Hope Innovators. Mm. We're trying to creatively carve a path of healing. Period. That's that's sick. That's <laughs> sick. Well, that, that's amazing. This is the super last question. Okay. I think you touched on a lot. What does it mean to you to be a creative? To be a creative means that you're always seeking ways to create transcendent and transformative experiences and narratives that help 
um, communities and people evolve into their greater selves. Mm. I love it. I love it, man. I, I, I'm grateful. I'm so appreciative of you just taking the time. And I, you know, I, we both got to run. But thank you so much for Thanks, just bro. taking this time. Your story is amazing, and I definitely got to have you back at some point. There's a lot of things we didn't touch on, where you know, in terms Anytime. of spirituality and theology. So Anytime. super, super grateful. The last thing, where, where can we find you on socials? What's your social handle? Um, on Twitter right now. You know, I'm one of those people who's resisting a long time, so mm. but I can't be. So. You can find the church experience, of course, on Instagram, Twitter, um, FCBC underscore NYC. Yeah. On Twitter, you can find me at Mike Walren. Okay. And that's where you get me. Awesome. Well, don't hesitate, guys, to hit up Pastor Mike Walren here and, and hit up FCBC. Those that are in New York, you definitely should come. It's a great, great, really, really dope, inspiring, creative experience. And if you have any questions, anybody you guys want to work together, you want to do anything, you're interested in working with Pastor Mike, um, helping them out creatively with anything. Don't hesitate to reach out. Definitely drop me a line on my email, which will be in the show notes. And uh, thank you guys so much. Any comments, any feedback, just hit me back or hit me up. Until next time, see you guys later.